Let's pray together. Father, we want to worship you. So, Lord, we cry out to you to reveal yourself to us in your word and cause us to be those who have genuinely, truly experienced you. And, Lord, keep us from being those who try vainly to establish our own righteousness before you. Lord, make us those who know that you are holy and only your own holiness will do. And give the grace of Christ, Lord, to make us those who know that in Christ we are free and safe and clean and whole. Lord, we pray that you would do this. We pray that you would fix our eyes on the grace to be given to us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to live for that day, that city. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> As I begin this morning, I can't help but comment on evidence of grace uh, that I have witnessed this morning. I mean, Chris Smith walked right into this pulpit and he opened his mouth and he didn't say a word about Clemson's victory on. That is self-control. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And, and I know that the Alabama fans are grateful for that. So, hallelujah. We all worship. We all worship. There's a man named David Foster Wallace who in 2005 gave a commencement address at Kenyon College. It's a famous address. Maybe, maybe like me, you've watched it on YouTube. Shortly after giving this commencement address, he committed suicide. But what he said in that commencement address was prophetic. Here's a, a snippet. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. We are all hardwired to worship and Unless we have experienced this reorientation of ourselves, this conversion of our whole being, we're inclined to worship anything but the living and true God. I would invite you to open this morning in your Bible to Psalm 86. 
And in Psalms 86 and 87, we are going to see David worship the Lord. And, you know, you shouldn't assume that that means it's going to be a setting like this, you know, where everybody's well-dressed and everybody's cleaned up and, and nobody's in imminent danger. No, David is going to worship the Lord in a time of desperate need. And it, it's what, what's so stunning about this is that when we think of, of the characters in the Bible, I, I keep com- I, I've said this before, I keep coming back to it because it's so striking to me. When we think of someone like David, King David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, saint, you know, this godly guy, well, he's weak and humble, and, and he's to a place where he knows that there is nothing in him that can deliver him. He is in desperate need of God. That's what we see from David here in Psalm 86. So the first thing we see about Psalm 86, right next to the big numbers, are the words, a prayer of David. And if you've been paying attention or if you've been here and, and you've been studying through the Psalms with us, you know that back in Psalm 72... We, we find the words at the end of Psalm 72, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And then as we've started into, right after Psalm 72, it says book three. So you start into book three of this five-book division of the Psalter. And we haven't seen any Psalms of David to this point in book three. This is the first one. This is the only one in, in book three, which are Psalms 73 through um, 89. This is the only psalm of David. Then there are two in book four, and then there's some more over in book five. And so it might cause you to raise your eyebrows. You might think, what's going on here? I thought the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, were ended. What are we getting now with this prayer? What's going on here? And I would suggest that in the, in the flow of thought, which is impressionistic, it's not, it's not like reading the book of Kings or the book of Samuel or even the book of Genesis where you've got this happened and then that happened, but in this sort of impressionistic flow of thought in the book of Psalms, what the, the arrangement of the Psalms are meant to do is make us look to the future king from David's line. And, and the Bible elsewhere talks about that future king from David's line by calling him simply David. So, for instance, the prophet Ezekiel, who lived after the time of the historical David, he, he says in Ezekiel 34, David will be king over my people. But he's not talking about the historical David. He's talking about that king promised to be raised up from David's line. And so as we read this prayer of David, which I think probably, most likely, was a real prayer that the historical David prayed. At the same time, the way it sits in the Psalter after the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, it's, it's making us think of the future David. And remarkably, that what, what the historical David prayed could just as well have been prayed by King Jesus. Look at what David says here. He says in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. He's crying out for God to to lean over, incline your ear, and then act in response to the prayer. And and just an observation, look down at verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you answer me. So there's there's a kind of dynamic at work here where on the one hand, he's saying, please answer me. And a few lines later, he's going to say, This is what you do. 
This is why I call on you. You answer me. And what we have in verses 1 through 6 is really just a pile of prayers. And the prayers are commands, just like the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. We're, we're commanding God, we're, we're, we're telling him what our needs are, and we're commanding him to give them. This is the way that Jesus taught us to pray. This is the way that David is praying. He's giving commands to God, but obviously they're not commands from a superior to an inferior, and so they're, they're prayer commands. That's what David is, is doing here. Let's just, let's just speed through them quickly. Look at verse uh, 1. Incline your ear. Answer. Verse 2. Preserve my life. Keep me alive. We're going to see later in the psalm. Look down at verse 14. Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. So that's what he's facing. People are trying to kill him. Back in verse 2. Save your servant. Preserve my life. Keep me alive. Save me. Deliver me from this danger. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord. Look down at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. He's going to pray the same thing again. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself if you catch yourself in prayers. Uh, repeating yourself. I mean, on the one hand, yes, you don't, want to, you don't want to fall into these sort of mindless repetitions that you don't really mean. But on the other hand... I mean, the psalmist, David, is, he's repeating himself, isn't he? Be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. The difference between what Jesus told us not to do, which was to pray with this mindless repetition, and what David is doing is obviously that David means it. He feels it. And then look at verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. Um, let me just encourage you. If you're... If you're in a job that you don't like, if you're, if, you're, if you're a parent of small children and you're sick of dirty diapers, or if you are trying to teach students and they are, they are frustrating you by their lack of effort or their failure to pay attention or their propensity to give up so quickly, if in, in any of this, if, if you're feeling like, I'm so tired of this, let me encourage you to lock on to this prayer right here in Psalm 86, verse 4, and, and offer it up to the Lord. Gladden the soul of your servant. You, the remarkable thing about walking with God is this is the kind of thing he does. He makes it so that even in the midst of our unpleasant circumstances that we don't really like, we don't want to be in, because he's with us, we start to feel joy in spite of everything else that's going on around us. Gladden the soul of your servant. Look at, look at verse 6 again. Give ear, O Lord. This is really just a repetition of verse 1. Incline your ear. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. This is how David is praying. Now, in addition to this pileup of petitions that, are, that come in the form of commands, God, David telling God what to do, he's got a list of reasons why the Lord should do this for him. So in, at the end of verse 1, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. You know, the Bible says that God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. And if you come like David comes here, I am poor and needy. There's grace from God for you. This is the kind of prayer that God answers. God doesn't answer the prayer of, hey, I got this. I mean, that, that, that heart is not even planning to pray. It's not, it's not disposed or inclined in the direction of prayer. But the prayer of, I'm, I'm bankrupt here. I'm needy. And I'm coming to you for that reason. That's how God wants, to, wants you to come, isn't it? I mean, think about, a, think about a parent with their child. Needy child comes to a parent. What's the parent going to do? He's going to indulge the request. He's going to answer. He's going to move. He's going to act. This is, this is knowing God as our Father. And then uh, look at verse 2. Preserve your life, for I am godly. I, I think that translation, for I am godly, is misleading. We should not understand David to be saying here, preserve my life because I'm one of the righteous guys. That's not what he's saying. That's not what we have here. What we have here uh, is a Hebrew uh, term, chasid. And that Hebrew word chasid is related to the Hebrew word chesed. And, and the word chesed is uh, steadfast love or loyal love or loving kindness or something along those lines. And I think what David is saying here is, uh, preserve my life, for I am marked by your steadfast love. Preserve my life because you love me. You love me. And, and that characterizes me, and that's why I'm crying out to you. And then I think that's backed up by the parallel line in the next part of verse 2. Save your servant who trusts in you. This is part of that poor and needy thing, isn't it? I'm poor and needy. I'm marked by your steadfast love, and I'm trusting you. That's why I'm crying out to you. This is like a clinic on prayer. This is how to pray. He continues, look at verse 3. Be gracious to me, O Lord. Here's another reason. For to you do I cry all the day. In other words, I'm not crying out to you in the morning and then crying out to some other god at midday, or to my own power, or to money, or to sex, or whatever to satisfy me, I'm crying out to you, and I'm going to continue in it all day long. You're the only one I'm going to rely on for my satisfaction. And then verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant. Uh, just an, a, a kind of a side note here. He calls himself in verse 2, that word godly, chasid, so marked by marked by your steadfast love. Then he refers to himself there also in verse 2 as your servant. That's a significant term in the Bible. Moses is called the servant of God. Joshua is God's servant. David is God's servant. This is really a big word in the Bible. And then now he's saying here in verse, verse 4, gladden the soul of your servant for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He's not lifting up his soul to idols. He's not lifting up his soul to to other deliverers, he's lifting up his soul to the Lord. And what's driving all this? What, what would make a man cry out to God this way? What would make a man rely only on God? The answer to that question is in verse 5. In verse 5, we see that David knows God's character. And, and if, you know, if you want to write something down about Verses 1 through 7, if you want to take one note, if you want to write one thing down, this is what you should write down. 
the character of God prompts David to pray. David knows God. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. You're good. You're forgiving. What, what this is revealing about what David is saying is, these guys trying to kill me, this is wicked of them trying to kill me. And you're good, and I know you're not going to stand for that. You're good, so deliver me from these murderous, violent men who are insolent and who don't fear you. You're good. Don't let them get away with this. You want to pray this way? You see wicked things happening in your school district or in the state government or at work? Lord, you're good. And I'm going to entrust myself to you in response to this. You are good and forgiving. I need your forgiveness. So I'm going to trust that you're not going to destroy me because of my failures. And the Lord also has this amazing power to convert sinners, as we'll see in, these, in this passage that we're looking at today. You are good and forgiving. And then he goes on in verse 5. And here he's quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which we saw quoted in Psalm 85. We're going to see it quoted again later in Psalm 86 abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The Lord abounds in steadfast love. You know, this word chesed, this Hebrew word chesed that David built that term hasid off to refer to himself as the man of God's loving kindness or something like that. Not all languages of the earth have a term like this. I talked to a guy uh, from uh, India and, and, and he was from a, a part of India that had their own tribal language. And he was telling me how they, their language doesn't have any kind of word that responds to this Hebrew word chesed. And in some, way that's, some ways that's true of English too. Because, because we, we've got all these groping attempts to get at what it is, you know. Some translations do loving kindness. Others do steadfast love. Others do loyal love. What it's getting at is God's absolute commitment to his own character, which, which flows outward in concern and goodness toward, toward his people. And, and it's, it's God's love, so it's, it's in some ways unlike anything else that, that we ever experience. You, O oh Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Do you want to be loved with almighty, abounding, steadfast love? Do you see the qualification to be loved that way? Do you see what it takes for you to be loved that way? You don't have to earn your standing before God. You don't have to somehow live up to his standards. Do you see what the text says for you to do right there? To all who call upon you. All you have to do is call upon him. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And, and Paul there is quoting the Old Testament. That's a, that's a statement from the Old Testament that Paul is quoting. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call on the Lord and almighty, everlasting, infinite, abounding, steadfast love comes your way. You are not going to find a better deal than this. You are not going to find a better God than this. This is David's experience of God's character 
is what's prompting him to say, all through this passage and in verse 6, give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. And then there's this confidence in verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. This is ancient testimony from King David. I called upon God, and it was his practice to answer me. You know what David is saying to us today? He's saying, you ought to follow my example. You ought to try what I tried. I called upon him. He answered me. Don't, let, don't take it from me. Take it from David, you know? You can live this way. I call upon the Lord in the day of trouble, and you answer me, David says. The character of God prompts David to pray in verses 1 through 7, and the character of God prompts David to worship in verses 8 through 13. So if you're taking notes, you want to write something down about verses 8 through 13, there it is. The character of God prompts David to worship. Look at verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. That, that, the word gods, lowercase g, what's David referring to? Um, well, there's some possibilities. He could be referring to the other things that the, the peoples of his day worshipped. You know, these idols to Baal and these cults that celebrate these these ancient Near Eastern gods. He could be thinking of the Egyptians and all the things that they worship. Or he could be thinking of the powers in the heavenlies, right? The Bible speaks of principalities and powers. He, the Bible speaks of, of a heavenly court, you know, that, that there are these powers up there. And what David is saying is, none of them, Lord, are like you. You are, you are unique you alone are altogether true and holy and righteous and loving. There's none of them like you. This is a statement about who God is. His next statement is about what God does. There's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. What are the works of God? Creation, this world is fabulous. Redemption. God acts to save his people. And David is saying, there are no works like yours. You created the world as Genesis records, and you have delivered your people as the history across the Old Testament tells. And, and there is no God that has ever done anything like what you have done. This is, this is how you worship God. You, you praise God for who he is and what he has done. And then look at verse 9. Because of these realities, because of the fact that, that God is unique in who he is, and because no other power in heaven or on earth can do what he does, verse 9, this is the natural uh, result of who God is and what he does. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's a statement of faith. Because in David's day and in our day, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. But David is taking this on faith. Why is he taking this on faith? Because God promised to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. And then as it develops across Genesis, in, in you and in your descendant, the seed that's promised to Abraham, that ultimately is Jesus. In you and in Jesus, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. 
And, and ultimately, at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 5, we see that there are people from every tribe and tongue and people and language surrounding the throne of God in heaven, worshiping God. And David is by faith saying that's going to be the case. Because of who God is, because of what he does, all the nations that you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And then verse 10 is really a restatement of verse 8. So verse 8 was like person and work, who you are, what you do. Look at verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous things. He's just repeating himself, isn't he? You alone are God. Brothers and sisters, this is the case. All the nations of the earth. I mean, the Bible tells us every knee is going to bow. Everyone is going to encounter God. You can encounter him willingly, gladly, and worship him, but you will encounter him. And, and in, our, in, our, in our context, in our, in our culture, there's, there's, there's so many people in our culture, and maybe it's even creeping in our own consciousness. We can be tempted to live as though there is no God. And, and there are so many people in our culture who live like there's this iron dome above them, not literally, but figuratively, and the heavens aren't populated with uh, powers and principalities and the living and true God. But even for, for people who live that way, sometimes transcendence breaks through into their consciousness. And, and when they experience this transcendence, they describe it like moments when they're genuinely worshiping. Listen, listen to this, this statement from uh, a guy named Lord Kenneth Clark who, who um, he produced this BBC television series called Civilization. He was a prominent art historian and author. And he wrote that at one point when he was living in France, he had a curious episode. This is what he wrote, quote, I had a religious experience. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo. This guy's not a believer. He's just in a church, you know, looking at the architecture. It took place in the church of San Lorenzo, but did not seem to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. This is an unbeliever. This is a guy who thinks we're, we evolved from that primeval soup. And the feelings and emotions, if he's consistent logically, this is just, you know, adaptations of my evolutionary development, chemical responses, and yet something's happening to him. He, he continues, quote, This state of mind lasted for several minutes, but wonderful as it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I experienced God. And I understood it was calling me to repentance. That's the way I would put what he said. And then he, then he continues. My family would think I was going mad. And perhaps, after all, it was a delusion. For I was in every way unworthy of such a flood of grace. And then he says, gradually the effect wore off and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. 
I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I had felt the finger of God, I am quite sure. And although the memory of this experience has faded, it still helps me to understand the joys of the saints. This man had the, had the joy of experiencing something like worship. He experienced the transcendent breaking through his secular closed reality. He understood it was calling him to repent of his sins. And he resisted. That's not what we see from David here. Look at verse 11. David has just described this moment when he's worshiping God. There's no one like God. There's no one who does works like God's. Look what he says in verse 11. This is the opposite of what that guy that, that I just read to you says. Look at verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. That's how we want to respond to God. When God breaks through, when you experience the transcendent realm, you want to respond to that. Lord, I want you to be the one who teaches me how to live, and I want to walk in your truth. And then, this is so perceptive. In, in, at the end of verse 11, David says, Unite my heart to fear your name. You know what David is saying? He's saying, I recognize that there are aspects, corners of my heart, there are aspects of who I am that aren't going to want to go along with your truth and your way. And what I want you to do, Lord, is put everything together so that all of me wants your way and your truth. All those, those hidden closets, all the places under the bed, all the channels or the websites or whatever, I need you to unite my heart so that everything in me is going in the same direction to fear your name. That last part is, so, is really, really perceptive. What David is recognizing is that those parts of his heart that desire other ways to find joy or satisfaction or life or whatever, those parts of his heart don't fear God. David understands that to transgress God's prohibitions and, and commands is to assert a fearless boldness to stand against God's authority and God's warnings of judgment. That's what we're doing. When we, when we say, well, I know this isn't what God has authorized. I know this is what God has prohibited. And I want it anyway. That's fearless boldness. Open rebellion against the Lord. And David is saying, put me back together, Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. Uh, St. Athanasius, back in the 4th century, he, he, he has a, a great statement in this letter that he wrote um, to a younger Christian in the faith on, on the uh, in, interpretation of the book of Psalms. And what Athanasius says here. It's, it's like he's thinking about Psalm 86, verse 11. He says, For to sing the psalms, and by the way, I love it that we're singing psalms. I hope you notice that that's happening. It's a wonderful thing. To sing the psalms demands such concentration of a man's whole being on them that in doing it, his usual disharmony of mind and corresponding bodily confusion is resolved just as the notes of several flutes are brought by harmony to one effect. 
And he is thus no longer to be found thinking good and doing evil, nor desiring evil, though unable to achieve it. And it is in order that the melody may thus express our inner spiritual harmony, just as the words voice our thoughts that the Lord himself has ordained that the psalms be sung and recited to a chant. When, therefore, the psalms are chanted, it is not from any mere desire for sweet music, but as the outward expression of the inward harmony obtaining in the soul. Because such harmonious recitation is in itself the index of a peaceful and well-ordered heart. That's a heart that has been united to fear God's name. And then this, this continues, verse 12, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. You see that? Unite my heart, and I'm going to thank you with my whole heart. This newly put back together heart, wholeheartedly thanks God, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. That's a reiteration, isn't it, of the way that God's steadfast love abounds in verse 5 toward all who call upon him. Great is your steadfast love toward me. And then, you know, back in verse 7, there was this statement of what, of confidence that God answers. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Now here at the end of verse 13, there's this confident statement of what God has done. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. It's like the, the lowest corner of hell. You delivered me from there. From the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. This is David expressing his confidence in bodily resurrection. You have, I don't think it's happened yet. He hasn't died yet. But David is talking as though it's already happened by faith. David is trusting that God is going to raise him from the dead. And now in verses 14 through 17, he comes back to his problem. Um, so it's interesting that he starts with his, his need in verses 1 through 7, then he worships God in verses 8 through 13, and now he returns to his need in verses 14 through 17, but all through he's going to be worshiping. Verse 14, oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. He's going to talk about these guys again down in verse 17 at the end, uh, where he refers to those who hate me. Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. These, these people are totally unconcerned with God. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's another quotation from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Once again, the character of God is enabling David to worship in the midst of difficulty. The character of God prompts David to pray in verses 1 through 7, prompts him to worship in verses 8 through 13, and the character of God holds him in the midst of difficulty in verse 15. And so he cries out again. He just persists in prayer. Turn to me. Be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because this, this little section, verses 14 through 17, ends the same way that the earlier sections ended. 
The first section, verse 7, ended, In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. This statement of what God does. Verse 13, verses 8 through 13, ended, You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Look at the end of verse 17. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I know that, um, I mean, I, I don't know everybody's problems, but I know the sufferings of some people in this room. And um, I don't know that there's anything in this life that's, um, I mean, I'm talking about a, a change in your circumstances or an alteration of uh, situation. I, I don't know that anything's going to fix that suffering except this. I think there, there are things in our lives that this is the only remedy for. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. I mean, there, there, there are things that we're all going to experience where that's the only hope we've got. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, we're supposed to cover Psalm 87 too? Don't worry, it's short. <laughs> um, look with me quickly at um, Psalm 87. The reason I wanted to cover these two together is because what we saw there in verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, is what we're going to see in Psalm 87. Um, Psalm 87 is a celebration of the city that is to come. So, you know, in the flow of thought that, that we've been uh, sort of thinking about through these psalms, if we, if we, if we kind of walk through it again, um, Psalm 78, it's like you've got the history of Israel's disobedience. And the result of that is in Psalm 79 where the temple comes under threat. The temple is attacked, which is exactly what God told Israel was going to happen. The temple would be destroyed. They'd be exiled from the land. And then in Psalm 80, at the end of Psalm 80, look at verse 17, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. And he's praying repeatedly in Psalm 80, verse 3, verse 7, verse 14, for restoration. Restore us, O God. So history of disobedience, destruction of the temple, prayer for restoration, hope for the coming Messiah. Psalm 81, uh, there's this reference to the feast in verse 3. Um, so they're going to celebrate the feast, the fulfillment of God's uh, past acts of deliverance in the future. Um, Psalm 82, um, God has taken his place in the midst of the divine council, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. God judges the powers in the heavens that are ranged against him. And then that judgment against the powers is directed at the nations that they control in Psalm, 84, uh, Psalm 83. And then Psalm 84, the celebration of God's city and what a blessing it is to be in his house, followed by Psalm 85 where God is worshipped. And then we've just seen Psalm 86, which reintroduces David. So it's like, it's like we've come to the restored city and the king has come upon the scene and now here come the nations streaming to Zion, just as Isaiah said, too said they would in Psalm 87. So look at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Selah. So the celebration of Zion. And then look at verse 4. Among those who know me, this is God speaking, I mention Rahab, that's kind of a nickname for Egypt, and Babylon. Egypt and Babylon were Israel's superpower neighbors that were like the rock and the hard place between which they were caught. 
That's, that's Egypt and Babylon. They're enemies. And yet God is saying, among those who know me, I mention Egypt and Babylon, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. Where? Zion. Rahab, Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, Cush, born in Zion. You see the implication of this? This is the rebirth of foreigners so that they are naturalized citizens of the city of God. That's what we've got going on in this psalm. This is anticipating what Jesus was going to talk about in John 3. That's why we read John 3 earlier in the, passage, earlier in the service. Because Jesus spoke to Nicodemus of this new birth the liberating message of this is, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you come from. It, I mean, you could, have born in a, you could have been born in a place as bad as Nazareth. That, none of that matters. God has the ability to cause you to be reborn and make it so that wherever you're from, your birthplace is Zion. Verse Five, and of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now I want to go back through that psalm, this psalm, Psalm 87, and, and, and draw attention to its beautiful literary structure. So look at verse 1. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Verse 1, you've got this founding of the city by God. Verse 7, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. So the city is founded by God, and the springs of the city, the supply of water, the, the life-giving source of nourishment is in God. Founded by God, springs from God. Beginning and end. And then verse 2, the Lord loves the gates of Zion. He loves that place. Look at verse 6. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. That language of recording and registration, you know what that's like? That's like God writing people's names in the book of life. And the Bible says that the reason God writes people's names in the book of life is because he has set his love on them. So I would argue that what you've got is the love of God for the place in verse 2 and the love of God for the people in verse 6. And then verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. Uh, glorious things of you are spoken. Glorious things of Zion are spoken. Well, look at verse 5. Of Zion it shall be said. Same thing, right? People talking about the place that God has set his love on. And then in the middle of the, of, of the psalm, which is everything's balanced around it to say this is the main point of this. Verse 4, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. I mean, the, Babylon, the Babylonians are the bad guys in the Bible. From, from the Tower of Babel to the destruction of the temple to the end of Revelation, come out from... Among her, come out from Babylon, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's what you read in Revelation. Babylon's the worst place in the world. And Babylonians are born in Zion because God is pleased to save those who were formerly his enemies. 
This, this is telling us about the shocking power of God to convert the wicked to his cause. Robert Cole writes of this in an astonishing reversal. People from those nations which attacked and sought Zion's destruction in Psalms 74 and 83. I mean, Rahab and Babylon, they're mentioned in earlier Psalms. Continuing with this quote from Cole, they now form an integral part of its citizenry and so partake of the promised eschatological kingdom. On this last line, um, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. And we sang that the hymn, um, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, but we did, I don't think we sang this verse that John Newton wrote. Who can faint while such a river ever flows our thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. What kind of city is that going to be? What kind of city is it going to be where people live in the presence of God? It's going to be like this. Tim Keller writes, The gospel creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. Racial and class superiority, accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all are marks of living in the world. They represent the opposite of the gospel mindset. That's not where we live. We live in this new city. Our city is the one that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And a river runs through that city. And the tree of life is on either side, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. Let's pray. Father, who are we to have you love us so? Who are we that you would send your son? Who are we that he would take our place? We can only respond in praise, Lord. And our hearts overflow with, with desire for other people to experience this goodness with us. So we pray for your blessing, that you would prosper our every attempt to proclaim the gospel, that we would all find you to be good and forgiving, and that the words of these two psalms would transform our lives, that we would be people whose hearts are gladdened because we call on you people who have experienced the enormity of your steadfast love because we come in the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit. Amen.